Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most brutal, the most heinous, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland, they are examined, they are profiled, and they are discussed. Now, we are finally back. I'm finally back after taking a small break after, you know, the last season because last season five, you know, honestly for me, the focus that was on like, you know, the sick, twisted and like the sadistic pedophile type, the sex related type murders and all that. I mean, I had to take a break. I really had to like take a small break. I mean, I closed it with, you know, Athena and all that. You know, after that season, I had to get my mind refocused. I had to get it back on track because, you know, that season was brutal. It was really intense. It really was intense for me. But now I'm back refreshed and I got a whole new focus. A whole new focus of murders that occurred in the state of Maryland. And for this season, which is season six, which I'm, you know, I'm finally glad that we're into season six. The focus will be on robbery related murders or basically murders where the murderer was like, you know, you got something that I want, you know, and I'm going to get it no matter what. Um, now, I only picked 10 of the most notorious uh, robbery related type murders because although in the state of Maryland, robbery is like a huge motive for a lot of the murders that occur like in this state. And like in the last season, this is only like part one of like these type of homicides, because trust me, there's like way more than 10 murders that are notorious, like and have like a robbery related motive to them. But with all that being said, let's just get right into it and focus on this episode's murderers. So on this episode, the horrific, brutal murder of 21-year-old James William Stombaugh Jr. will be profiled and as in the last season and every season before that, an unsolved homicide that needs special attention will be profiled and examined. Now, I can promise you that on every single episode, there will be a murder profile um, that is un- unsolved. And it is like, like, it's not necessarily a cold case. But for this episode, the unsolved shooting murder of 34-year-old Melissa Ann Bingham Hasperson will be examined and profiled. Now, kids, I'm telling you, today we're going to talk about kids and what they are and are not capable of supposedly doing. To keep it 100, most kids who grow up to be like teenagers... They usually got their little episodes of rebellion or stages where they literally turn into somebody else, you know, but for the most part, most teenagers, they usually grow up, they get their act together eventually, and they end up on the right path, even if they was headed down the wrong direction. They usually get a job, you know, back in my day, usually as like a teenager, your first job was either like a a summer job. I mean, you either got like a summer job through labor works or something like that through the state, or you got a fast food, like fast food restaurant job, like McDonald's, 
you know, getting a job as a teenager at like a fast food place, that was like the first steps to managing your money, you know, paying for things yourself, like learn responsibility, stuff like that. Uh, places like Wendy's, Taco Bell, especially McDonald's, you know, back in the day, these type of jobs, they were almost like reserved for kids that were still like in high school or sometimes even junior high school. I mean, even for me, my first fast food job was at a Hardee's out on Smills. You know, fast food jobs were like a way for a lot of kids to like make pocket change. Well, for me, it was like a way to buy my own school clothes. For some kids like who wanted it, they could work their way up from cashier or like fry cook or whatever, you know, behind the counter. You could work your way up from like those positions to eventually becoming like a general manager. Now, that's what James William Stombaugh Jr. did. As a kid, James was born in Baltimore, but raised on Aberdeen Road in the Netshell area of Northern Baltimore County. James went to Immaculate Heart of Mary Parochial School as a young kid before moving out like and graduating from Lock Raven High School, where he graduated in 1997. At 16 years old, James got his working permit. I mean, I wonder if they still give out your working permit. They used to call it, was it a learner's permit? Not, not learner's, but like a working permit. I mean, I'm telling my age. But anyway, James ended up getting uh, his working permit. And he and his, his first fast food job was at the Burger King on Joppa Road in the Satire Hill section of Baltimore County. As James worked hard, he progressed at his job. He realized it was something that he loved to do and that he wanted to do. He started working at other Burger Kings in uh, Timonium in Baltimore County. He started working at one in Cockeysville in Baltimore County. And finally, he ended up at uh, a Burger King in the 1100-300 block of York Road near Sharon Road in Hunt Valley where the now 21-year-old James was promoted to general manager of the store. Um, he excelled at his job. Plus, he was an all-around good person. He lived with his, you know, twin look-alike father in the 1400 block of Putty Hill Avenue in Baltimore County. He worked and he minded his business. He worked hard. Part of his job as a manager at Burger King was hiring and firing other employees. And one of the employees, he, uh, he used to work up there, um, his name was 19-year-old Courtney Darnell Bryant. And he got fired because he was one of those teens who didn't like to come to work. You know, calling out at all times, calling in late, being sloppy, you know, expecting the world to, you know, work around your schedule. And then one year I asked get fired. Courtney, like, who reportedly had a rough trout, uh, he had a bad childhood, Basically, combined with, like, he was addicted to crack cocaine but still had a job. He didn't take the firing too good. He got pissed off because he got fired. And he decided to get even. That was just, like, he decided that, you know, no matter what, he was going to go ahead and get his money. He was going to get paid one way or the other. I mean, so he decided that he was just going to flat out rob the store. And he got it in his mind that he was just basically going to take what he thought was rightfully his. So he got some of his little boys together 
including a dude who was still working at the Burger King. He needed an inside job, and he decided that he was just going to roll the Burger King and live happily ever after. Throw complete caution to the wind. Fuck everything, including the consequences. I mean, really, the mentality. I'm just going to rob the police. Courtney got help from his friends, 17-year-old Andre Lamont Lawson, and another employee who was still working there at the Burger King. He was about 16 years old. And on the evening of December the 23rd, 2000, just two days before Christmas, which was, you know, like a traumatic time for families, for somebody, you know, (laughs) the plan was put in motion. The 16-year-old employee who still worked at the Burger King, he got a call from Courtney. Courtney wanted to make sure that the coast was clear and that they had the okay to just come in and rob the store. The plan at first was just for them to, like, tape up the manager, you know, who was James at night, tape his hands up with duct tape, blindfold him with the tape, put him in the back of the restaurant office, get the money, and just roll out this dip. So, after James locked the doors at 10 o'clock, and the um, the night staff, which including the 60 employee, um, they started doing their duty of like cleaning up the place, you know, wiping things down, doing that whole routine of getting the place ready for, you know, in the morning. The dude who still worked there, he opened up the back door and let Courtney and Andre in. Um, a fourth employee who was still there and it was helping him clean up. He had a funny feeling. He like, he had heard rumors and stuff like that. And he like, that something was going to go down. He had a funny feeling that something was going to happen. So he didn't want no parts of it. None of it. And he left the store, but he didn't really tell nobody what he was feeling or nothing like that. Um, Courtney and his crew, they came creeping in the restaurant. Well, Courtney and Andre came creeping in the restaurant with Andre carrying like a blue duffel bag and a roll of duct tape. They planned to catch, like I said, they planned to catch um, James off guard and some sort of surprise attack, but God had other plans. I mean, it's just like in the movies. It's always something stupid that happened. Um, anything can go wrong. And as they were creeping through the Burger King, one of them accidentally knocked over a broom. And James heard a noise. And when he came in the back to see what was like where the noise was coming from, that's when he saw them and it was like on. So James started struggling with them and fighting with them. And knew, like, he just knew like right away that some shit was about to go down so he started fighting and everything right in the back of the office then courtney and andre they jumped him and the fight it like spread out into the back of like the store and in the back of the store was like you know where they keep the trash and the dumpsters and all of that the fight was like right there and both courtney and andre just started beating him like brutally um it's, they was like, fuck the plan. They picked up weapons where James was beaten all throughout his head and his body. I mean, they used a heavy metal, like a door stopper that had been used to prop open like a heavy door. And that shit had to be, had to weigh, like had some weight on it. And Andre picked up like a heavy oil or like a grease shuttle thing. And he continued to beat James all throughout the head and like with, ugh. It was like so brutal that with James ended up like barely moving. 
Courtney took James his keys to his car, which was like a 1999 Honda Civic. With they planned to take the car, and and they they plan to take the car and just get away and just get out and just spend whatever money they got. And they looked back though and saw that James was still moving. And by this time, Courtney decided that because he knew that James had recognized him, that he could easily identify him. And he was like, yo, he could just call the police. He figured that James could just easily go to police. And why would he let him do that? He could just tell them what happened. He was like, why would I let them do, you know, do that? So in that split second, Courtney decided that he had to get rid of James and that he had to let him go. So, I mean, he had to let him, you know, he had to kill him. So he went back to where James was lying by the dumpsters and started hitting him on the head some more. And to make sure that James would never move again, Andre came over and stabbed him over and over in his shoulder. This was the mentality and actions of a 17-year-old and a 19-year-old to kill and destroy. And for what? These idiots got about $2,800 from the store. And after killing James so brutally and taking his life, all three of them, Andre, Courtney, and the dude who had let them in, all, who had let them all inside the store, all three of them left in James' car. On Sunday, the next morning, when the shift, the morning shift manager came to work at the Burger King, he saw that not only was the alarm not set, but after he went in, he saw money and blood and everything scattered everywhere, and the place was looked like it had been ransacked, like exactly like a robbing had taken place, a robbery had taken place. So before he took another step, he called the Baltimore County to, um, Police Department. When a police officer showed up on scene around 6.30 a.m., he investigated further and he went he went to the um, back of the store and that's where he found James' body beside the dumpsters. James' entire face and wrist had been wrapped in like gray tuck duct tape. A, a complete brutal scene. A medical examiner later determined that James' cause of death was blood loss like he basically bled there by some dumpsters by some trash dumpsters from like the severe injuries and torture that he endured before his murder remembered as an en an energetic person with an outworn personality who loves scholastic and professional wrestling matches james murder completely destroyed his family especially his father who he was particularly close to his father told reporters for the Baltimore Sun that the murder of his son left him with absolutely no reason to live. Like, and that the pain was that deep and that he visits his son's grave every single day. I'm going into his bedroom every night and laying on his bed crying my eyes out. They took Jimmy's life, but they took my life as well. Later, on the same day that James' body was found, that's the comment that he had made to the Baltimore Sun, by the way. But later on the same day that James' body was found, Baltimore City Police found that James' car was parked and abandoned in the 2000 block of Wolf Street near John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore City. Of course, they all got caught soon after that because they obviously did not know, first off, 
that Burger King does have surveillance, cam- surveillance cameras in the store. And they left d- their own DNA all throughout the store. All throughout the store. And all on the scene. The murder was eventually traced back to Andre. And when the police got a search warrant to search Andre's house, they found bloody shorts. I mean, uh, bloody boots, bloody sweatpants, and a plastic bag that had James' blood on it. When the detectives brought him in from questioning, Andre broke down and confessed. Then all three people started snitching on each other. They labeled Courtney as the ringleader or the, the mastermind of James' murder. When Courtney's trial started on December 11, 2001, a Baltimore County jury convicted Corey of first-degree premeditated murder, robbery with, robbery with a deadly weapon, and conspiracy to commit robbery with a deadly weapon. Andre got convicted next of the same charges, and the dude who let them all in, like, he took a plea deal to felony murder on May 3rd. He ended up getting a, a 25-year sentence with all but 10 years suspended. Andre got a life sentence without the possibility for parole. As for Courtney, because of the whole brutal nature of James' horrific homicide, the prosecution wanted him bad. I mean, they was like, ugh. You know, I mean, two felonies in one crime equals the death penalty. And plus, you know, to be honest, they were black, he was white. And on February the 4th, 2002, that's exactly what a jury recommended for Courtney, for him to be put to death. This was when they had the death penalty in Maryland, in the state of Maryland. This was like a minute ago. The jury didn't give a fuck about, they didn't care about Courtney's rough childhood, where he grew up with both physical and sexual abuse that he claimed. Courtney's public defender tried to save his life by having a licensed psychologist testify on his behalf that because Courtney's suffered from severe and chronic PTSD from his childhood and because how he basically shouldn't be put to death because he had addictions to alcohol, weed, and cocaine, that somehow his life should be spared and the court should show him some type of mercy because he didn't know no better. Because he was so young and he had such a fucked up life and blah, blah, blah. I mean, get the fuck out of here. Come on now. The court thought otherwise. And for about two years, Courtney sat on Merlin's death row with the rest of Merlin's death row inmates. Because the court, you know, the jury, they was basically like, no, I'm not trying to hear that. That's how juries used to be back in Merlin. When... The Merlin Court of Appeals reviewed his case like they usually do, or like they do all death penalty cases, conviction cases. They eventually changed his sentence to one of life without the possibility for parole. Fifteen years after Courtney and Andre received their life sentences, Andre begged the judge to reconsider his own sentence of life without parole because he was a juvenile at the time. He claimed because he was too young, like he helped to kill James and... You know, he was too young to know better. He was too young to act like he had a brain. Like, he basically was just basically too young to have such a harsh sentence. And that's what he claimed his defense was. 
with no hopes. He she, he's basically was saying that he shouldn't it shouldn't be where he has no hopes of ever getting out of prison because he was just too young. He was like juveniles, you know, they're just kids, teenagers who shouldn't have to receive such adult sentences because their brains are just wired differently or whatever. All that bullshit, you know, nice try and blah fucking blah. The court was like, nope, you're going to stay your ass in prison. Merlin, don't play about that shit, you know, especially where the murder was extremely brutal the way it was. Now, um, to me, in my opinion, this murder was notorious in the state of Maryland because of its brutal nature. You know, the weapons that were, that were used. I mean, Google uh, an oil stopper. and I mean, a door stopper and all that. And you see how big that shit is. And how heavy that shit got some weight to it. A lot of people in Maryland may not remember this case because, like I stated in the beginning of this podcast, um, the state of Maryland has a lot of homicides like this one where somebody's robbed a Burger King or robbed a store or anything. But this one stood out for me because, like I said, the killers beat him the weapons that they used. Really? I mean, that's kind of brutal. That's kind of brutal. Plus, they thought they could just get away with it, which is beyond me. This one stood out for me, too, because I remember the father's grief. I saw the pain in his eyes, you know, in his voice, this, that look of absolute emptiness when he gave his statement when he was talking about his son. And I felt for him. You know, his son was doing all the right things, too. I mean, he was working his whole life. And then he was killed for what? What, $2,800? I mean, come on now. That, that was a hot, that was just, that was just terrible to me, in my opinion. Moving right into this week's unsolved homicide. Um, but before I do, let me just mention that this is not just a podcast that focuses on high-profile, notable homicides in the state of Maryland. On this podcast, a portion will always be dedicated to victims where, you know, nobody knows what happened, where nobody knows nothing, nobody knows anything. A victim was here one minute and they was gone the next. And you'll be surprised at the number of people who are killed. And people actually, they know who did the killing. That the friends and the family of the victim, they actually know who did what. But because they can't prove it, they don't know how to go about getting justice. And they are still left with tons of unanswered questions. Unbelievable grief. And it's like they died all over again it's hard to move on with your life trust me it's hard to move on like that when you have so many unanswered questions you're expected to just move on pick up where you left off hope that the detectives will do their job and then hope that the justice system will deliver you some sort of justice that equals to the loss of your loved one that don't happen a lot in the state of Merlin and the the detectives are basically kept extremely busy with cases that already have clues. So imagine what they're doing with the ones that don't. Um, what happens to all of those cases, all those homicides? With no clues, no help, no tips. To be honest, these cases are eventually labeled as cold cases. And sorry to say, they put on a back burner and forgotten about. And honestly nothing happens well on this podcast 
Every single unsolved homicide needs attention, no matter the victim, no matter the victim's lifestyle, no matter what they did or they didn't do in their personal life. I mean, who the hell are we to judge when we damn sure ain't perfect our damn self? That shit kills me like every single time. Like, so-and-so deserved to be killed because they was out tricking or so-and-so deserved to be killed because they was out selling drugs. The way he was a drug addict and he deserved it. You know, really? Last I checked, your name ain't God. And you're not perfect yourself. And so for this particular season, season six, all of the unsolved cases that will be profiled will be women. Like only females who were murdered in the state of Merlin. All of this will be the focus for the for season six. All of the unsolved cases will be women or females that were killed in the state of Merlin. So with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting death of 34-year-old Melissa Ann Bangham Haberson. Now to be honest, simply put, not even a whole lot is even known. Not even a lot that's even known about this particular homicide. On May 7, 2015, Around 6.15 p.m. at the intersection of West Patapsco Avenue and Pulte Street in South Baltimore, all of a sudden, shots rang out and Melissa was hit multiple times. A neighbor heard the shots and Melissa was, she called 911 and Melissa was rushed to an area hospital where she was pronounced dead. Police think that maybe her murder was related to her lifestyle because she had several convictions for drug possession and prostitution. And that's literally it. They have absolutely nothing else. And her homicide just quickly just meshed into one and went cold. 2015 was like a particularly brutal year. And she just blended into the rest of the cold cases. They have detectives. They have absolutely nothing else and her homicide quickly just went cold so y'all already know what's coming next if you know of or if you have any information at all no matter how small you may think it may be um if you have any information at all that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this particular homicide please please call cold case cold case detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also send them a text message at 443-902-4824. You can also give them a call at Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-LOCKUP. You can even email them at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. Once again, those numbers are Code Case Detectives at 410-396-2100. Or you can send a text message anonymously at 443-902-4824. You can also give them a call at Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-LOCKUP. You can email them at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. 
Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine tingling, hair raising, eye popping episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the unedited version of basically the truth of why I do what I do, how I got into true crime, why I started all the books and all that, you know, the podcast. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day and then boom, there's a podcast. But novel, there's a lot, there's a full-blown method to all this madness. And this was definitely like no spur of the moment type thing or no gimmick. So also be sure to check out, pay a visit to uh, the new website, which is uh, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com. And Maryland is spelled MDS, Most Notorious Murders.com, where you can listen to every single episode that's been released from all of the past seasons. At the website, you can also leave me a message. And you can find links to all of the books that are related to this podcast entitled uh, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and the book every woman should have, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore. Be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another heinous robbery-related homicide will be examined, it will be profiled, And it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a real life, I'm sorry, this has been a Savage Life production.